Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Perhaps you've seen this one maddening ad that I have seen on the internet, online, and it is a a small photo of uh, Barack Hussein Obama, I believe, with Michelle. And there is a caption about the experts have spoken. You know, I'm paraphrasing badly here, but the experts have spoken. They have declared, they have determined and declared who the greatest president of the United States has been. And it has a picture of Barack Hussein Obama. And so I have the feeling that it probably uh, gives us this conclusion that he's the greatest. But maybe not. Maybe it's a teaser. Probably just a teaser. Uh, But anyway, it uh, implies, insinuates uh, that the conclusion is Barack. Well, concerning Barack Hussein Obama, you are unlocked undoubtedly aware of uh, something that he proudly asserted, championed, espoused while he was president. And that was the assertion that Islam prepared the way, paved the way for the European Renaissance that this explosion of brilliant creativity owed its existence to Islam. Fascinating assertion. Fascinating hypothesis. When in fact, if the Muslim hordes, if the Islamist hordes had succeeded with their operations, Europe, all of Europe, would have been crushed and enslaved and destroyed under Islam. In addition to Britain... United States of America never would have come into existence. Now, there are plenty of academicians and high and mighty types here in this nation that would say <laughs> amen to that, though they would, except they wouldn't use that term. But that would be absolutely delighted with that, who are in fact extremely in favor of bringing that about and work to that end. It's a labor of love for them against this nation which they despise. But what is it they despise about the United States of America? I mean, other than the fact that it has propped up free nations around the world now for some time, but 
What is it they really hate? It's really the foundation, the Christian foundation of this nation. No, not the Native American Indian foundation of this nation. No. It's the Christian foundation of this nation that they despise, they loathe, and they have insatiable, unquenchable, hatred for and passionately seek to destroy. Perhaps you saw uh, the latest from France concerning this wonderful protest that's going on over there. (laughs) It's the Yellow Vest protest. And... This is the 18th straight weekend of demonstrations against President Emmanuel Macron. And initially, when this started, I believe it was November 17th, yes, November 17th. So this was the four-month anniversary, the one-third of a year anniversary of this movement, (laughs) the Yellow Vests, who have been protesting against Macron and his government pertaining to taxation, excessive taxation, precipitously declining living standards, Stagnant wages, increasingly high, very high and increasingly high unemployment and so forth. Well, Macron has had now a two-month national debate concerning this, and it just came to an end. And these protesters, when the protest began, they had a huge number of French people who were linked with them. But those numbers have declined. And it is thought that this is due to the violent nature of rioting that has personified this protest that combined with various economic concessions by Macron and his government. Well, this most recent attack by them along the Champs-Élysées, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, pardon me, The police estimated that there were one and a half thousand ultra-violent, uber-violent individuals in a body of 10,000 protesters. And despite the violence perpetrated by one and a half thousand, only 109 were arrested. What kinds of things did they do? 
besides hurling smoke bombs, starting fires at every opportunity, destroying storefronts, they almost managed to murder, you can say kill, a number of people, including a mother and her child, who were in the residential portion of a, I believe, a seven-story building. Again, along this famed, but I cannot pronounce it correctly, Champs-Élysées, something like that. Yes. Miraculously, this mother and child and the others in the building were saved from dying as a result of these wonderful anarchistic protesters. (laughs) These... Wonderful ones. We can expect much more of this. You know, we can either, we can look on the bright side and say, well, the worst of this is past. Or we can be realistic. (laughs) It's going to get worse. There will be more of this across Europe. And Brexit notwithstanding, probably in Britain. (laughs) But... Wonderful stuff. By all means, you need to engage in terrible violence in order to protest for higher living standards, right? We can expect the same in the United States of America. The Nobel Prize organization, the Nobel organization, it has promoted its secret agenda now for, lo, these many years. And it is fascinating, some of the great men, and I would say people, but in this case, men, that have been nominated for Nobel Prizes. Ones like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, Henry Kissinger, Kissinger, Dr. Vladimir Putin, perchance. And of course, the likes of Barack Hussein Obama, and so forth. Not to mention Yasser Arafat, as evil a destroyer as there has ever been. But not just a nominee, but a recipient. (laughs) But here, the Nobel organization betrays its hidden agenda in nominating a 16-year-old Swedish girl What great things has this young woman, this girl, this teenage girl done in her life to merit this? Unlike the 17-year-old 
girl who was so exceedingly deserving, who was targeted by the Taliban for assassination and miraculously survived and has continued to be just remarkable, amazing, courageous, wonderful young woman. But this girl, this girl, her cause celeb is climate change, is combating climate change. The Nobel organization, they just, they love that. I mean, that is one of their absolute numero uno cause celeb causes. And this young girl, she has chosen to skip school for protracted periods of time while she stakes out her turf and protests in action regarding solving the evil climate change. And in this uh, coverage, one thing that was stated was that her efforts eventually got the attention of world leaders. Yes, she began this when she was 15, and now she is only 16, but her efforts eventually, you know, after years and years and decades of struggle (laughs) at the age of 16, or while she was still 15, her efforts eventually got the attention of world leaders. Oh, that is just heartwarming. And uh, anyway, exciting stuff. So she may become the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. One can only hope. One can only hope. But again, she bears no resemblance to Malala Yousafzai even as Donald Trump bears no resemblance to Ronald Reagan but Nancy Pelosi dear Nancy speaker of the house now, as I stated before, and as you, as you are well aware, you know, she has stated that she is not in favor of impeachment of President Trump. Big of her, I think. Very big. And to quote the great woman, she said, quote, I'm not for impeachment. This is news. I haven't said this to any press person before, but since you asked. And I've been thinking about this. Impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country and he's just not worth it. End quote. Well, 
just <laughs> it is just a trifle uh breathtaking really um Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. This is not about whether a president is worth it. (laughs) Whether he's worth it. It's a matter of has he committed high crimes and misdemeanors that justify removing him from office? That's what it's about. But... Nancy, great woman that she is, is a political hack, Democrat hack, Democrat ideologue. And for her to beg off leading the impeachment charge on the grounds that it would be so divisive, is just so incredible, as in not credible. No, it's not that, (laughs) it's not about divisiveness. It's not about causing division. No, she (laughs) wouldn't hesitate. She would go forward with it in a heartbeat. If she thought she could succeed either with actually having him removed from office, which of course requires the U.S. Senate to play ball, to go along, not just the House of Representatives. U.S. Senate has to convict. But if she thought she could achieve that, or, and this is key too, or that she could achieve some major political gain by doing this, she would do so. She would not hesitate. (laughs) Absolutely positively would not hesitate. To this day, she insists, you know, that, of course, Bill Clinton never should have been impeached and so forth. But why? Why is it that she isn't going forward with this? Well, first of all, she doesn't believe that she can get it done. In the real politic world, she doesn't believe that at this point in time that it would be successful. Which is not to say (laughs) that she doesn't believe that it can ultimately be achieved, but not at this time. Additionally, she rightly recognizes that there are more important things to be about, not with regard to doing good for the nation. Forget that. That is not what matters here. No, no, no. 
politically, political gain for herself and her party. The upcoming elections, including the presidential election. She keeps impeachment in her hip pocket so that if additional ammunition should be unearthed that can be used devastatingly in an impeachment proceeding against the president, that she can take advantage of that. But also so that if the Democrat Party fails to defeat Donald Trump for president in the 2020 presidential election, general election, that then They can resort to impeachment. So they get an extra bite at the apple. This is, again, a very cold, calculated decision. (laughs) And unlike the emotional, hot, passionate various others, who are in a dither to go after impeachment, Nancy Pelosi is a very accomplished Paul, political operator, political operative, very accomplished, very cool, calm, collected, She hasn't gotten where she's gotten by being other than that. So it's not it's not about it being divisive, or if you prefer divisive, it's not about dividing the country. It's not about that he's not worth it. It's just that. It's not the best time, not the best opportunity yet, and that she reserves that option, that nuclear option. She retains that in case the Democrat Party fails to win the presidency in the 2020 general election. Well, there are those, of course, who will disagree with me, but (laughs) perhaps you have seen about Starbucks' former CEO, the great man, the great, great man, Howard Schultz, Yes, he is 
you know, doing the dance about the maybe he will, maybe he won't, you know, initiate a uh, exploratory committee to decide whether he should grace this nation with a presidential run. Well, anyway, he's running for president as an independent. Outside the fray of the two major parties. And he just made the most remarkable, breathtakingly idiotic statement a short time ago. And he stated, uh, let me see if I can find his words. And I can't, but that nobody had spent as much time or more time than he with the military over the last decade. That's right, that of the candidates for president, he stated that he had probably, pardon me, probably spent more time with the military than any other candidate for president for the 2020 presidential run here. Well, interesting because he's not talking about actually serving in the military. One might think so. One might think, well, oh my, he he must have been in the military. He must have, uh, you know, an excellent Military record. Not really. (laughs) Not really. No. And that's what's remarkable about it, is how this man, who has not been in the military, would make such a ridiculous, stupid, stupid claim. Well, he had a series of visits to military bases. And he had friendships with an admiral and a retired general. Whoa, how big is that? Uh, I just uh, just think that's, you know, outstanding. But anyway, a couple of of the candidates, and I cannot pronounce this guy's name, uh, Pete Buttigieg or something like that. Buttigieg. Buttigieg Uh, from Indiana, Democrat. He was a lieutenant in the Navy Reserve when he was deployed to Afghanistan in 2014. And then there's Tulsi Gabbard. And she was, I think she was on two deployments. But anyway, it's just an outrageous, stupid claim. You know, people looking at him, they'd be thinking, well, this man, he's so brilliant, right? So successful. Wow, he'll do great things for this nation. And he comes out with this outrageous, downright stupid claim that he probably spent more time with the military than any other candidate for president for 2020. Before I continue, let me just say I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. 
And whatever's right and true and good about this program is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus. Whatever's wrong, lacking, erring (laughs) is due to me. Speaking of presidential race 2020, Elizabeth Warren, and there has been this ongoing uh, soapbox concerning her identity uh, as far as whether she is Native American or white, Caucasian, or what have you, you know, and so forth. And I haven't addressed that before, but I do want to just say a couple things concerning it. And that is, you know, she was a law professor at the University of Texas, a prestigious university, a prestigious law school. Okay, a big platform there. Being a law prof at University of Texas, you've arrived. Is it at the absolute top? No, that would be Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Chicago, University of Chicago Law School and Cal Berkeley Bolt School of Law. Those are typically viewed as being the absolute pinnacle. But University of Texas is right there, okay, behind them. So this was a very high and mighty position. And she obtained that with only the standard run-of-the-mill Juris Doctor degree. How did she do that as a young woman? <laughs> did, did her parents pay some large amount of money to uh, uh, grease the skids? No, no, I am, I'm teasing. Uh, but again, she had a JD degree. And she became a full law professor at University of Texas. Pretty good. At least that's what I've seen, is that she was a full law prof, okay? So not an associate prof, not an assistant prof, not an adjunct prof, but a full prof. Pretty good. Uh, And that's without having some additional degrees beyond JD. Well... Could it have anything to do with her her identifying herself as being American Indian? Oh, surely not. Surely not. Well, she filled out a form with the Texas State Bar, which asked her to list her race. And she printed carefully block letters, American Indian. Did it have anything to do with her becoming a full law prof at University of Texas? Undoubtedly not. I mean, the thing is, that's the only, that's just about the only scrap of evidence there is of her having done this other than testimony from people (laughs) that she's, Uh, claimed this time and again. But as far as the materials that the University of Texas Law School had to work with pertaining to her 
application pertaining to her becoming law prof. Is it possible? Is it possible that somehow or other there was something in there about her being American Indian? Is it possible that they would have paid particular attention to her, that this would have separated her from other candidates, that this would have just moved her up the ladder just ever so slightly. Is that possible? Undoubtedly not possible, right? Just not even possible, right? Well, I happen to think that it's more than possible. I happen to think that it played a role directly with regard to her ascension I do believe so. I believe it's been very advantageous for her and that she has used it, exploited it to her advantage. And perchance there is an American Indian ancestor way back there. But I probably have a stronger claim to that than dear Elizabeth. But I make no such claim. I could also claim to be Jewish. I don't, but I could. <laughs> All right. But again, you know, some people, they just, uh, they can't resist opportunities like that, right? To be able to classify yourself as a minority <laughs> in addition to being a woman who is, of course, a majority female uh, population, and yet, of course, are continually and still viewed as being minority. But, uh, but speaking of the great woman, Elizabeth War- Warren, yes, she is one of the and this might not sound right that there would be more than one front runner, but she's one of the front runners. I will say that, even if that seems, you know, like an incorrect statement, like there can only be one front runner. Who's to say there couldn't be five or six, you know, neck and neck, abreast of one another? But anyway, concerning the Boeing, Boeing 737 MAX 8, aircraft, of which there have been two monstrous airline crashes, both of them extremely soon after takeoff. Well, a number of prominent, prominent public servants, (laughs) public servants, right, politicians, called on the FAA to ground the plane. Now, this is before the FAA issued its its tardy, (laughs) hesitant, delayed decision to ground the aircraft. But what, what the great woman said was this, was that while we do not know the causes of these crashes, serious questions have been raised about whether these planes were pressed into service without additional pilot training in order to save money. And that was quote and end quote. 
she called upon the FAA along with you know her sisters and brothers in arms to ground these planes immediately and called for Congress to hold hearings. Isn't that outstanding? That's, I just think, such outstanding leadership. Again, the answer to these things, to every problem, really, the answer to every problem is to hold endless congressional hearings. Okay, this is the best possible use of the time of members of Congress is to hold hearings. Very, very valuable. Yes. Well, she said, we do not know the causes of these crashes. Well, maybe. (laughs) And uh, she lays the blame. I mean, she's talking about pilot error here. You know, whether these planes were pressed into service without additional pilot training in order to save money, you know, by the airlines, not by Boeing, the pilot training would be by the airlines, but wouldn't it? I would think. But when she brings up additional pilot training, then that really speaks to pilot error. Whether it's a matter, whether it's due to pilots being inadequately prepared to pilot these planes or whether it's other things. But I do think that she errs <laughs> with regard to that. And I'll come back to that. So here, after many nations had grounded the aircraft, had prohibited the 737 MAX 8s and MAX 9s to fly until everything has been sorted out, the United States of America's government has acted. The Federal Aviation Administration, they have acted now. And this is following receiving information from the black boxes of these aircraft, of the one, rather I should say the one in, in Ethiopia that crashed just outside of Addis Ababa and uh, six minutes after takeoff, killing all aboard. And there was enough in the data, in the black box, that it caused them to shut it down. But what about this aircraft? You know, the president tweeted... I made a couple tweets about it, and the first tweet, I think, was better than the second. Not that I follow his tweets, but I've I've seen them mentioned <laughs> in articles and reports. And this aircraft, what about this aircraft? Well, before I get to the particulars, let me just say this. That when it comes to any type of vehicle, be that an automobile, a truck, a bus, a semi-tractor trailer, or train, whether it's a run-of-the-mill locomotive or whether it's a bullet train or whether it happens to be a boat, a yacht, a ship, 
How about a submarine or an airplane, a little Piper Cub or a Learjet or major airliner or military aircraft or a space shuttle, whatever it happens to be. And certainly, seemingly, this would not pertain to trains, but I throw them in there anyway. If there is anything about that vehicle that indicates that it will not follow a path, a, an intended path, it will not stay on course. <laughs> it will deviate from it, let alone wildly, but that it will deviate from it and it will require correction to keep it on path, then there's a problem. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. What about the vehicles? They're being driven and so forth. But the point is, if they are not caused to go off track, to go off path, if there's something, if there is something in the design, not weather conditions, not (laughs) drug-induced piloting or boozed-up piloting or something else, but if there's something about the aircraft or the ship or the vehicle that causes it not to stay on track, not to stay on course, then there's something seriously wrong. And Boeing here, they begin with an aircraft, the 737, famous, fabulously successful aircraft of theirs that they have had many renditions of, I guess, you know, tweaks here and there after some sort or other. But they are in high-powered competition with other manufacturers such as Airbus. And lo and behold, they decided they need to do something to be more competitive so that they don't get beaten out of the race to sell aircraft. And they take their basic 737, their current 737, and they increase, they soup up the power for it engines for it, but bigger, heavier engines on it. They make various other changes to the aircraft, but keeping the basic body of the aircraft as similar as they can, okay, making as few changes as they need to, while at the same time trying to promote efficiency and keeping their customers, their customers who have been so loyal, (laughs) who've been so impressed with the 737 aircraft. And But a little problem occurs, and that is that this redesign, 
with these new engines that they cause the aircraft to behave in a way that it has not behaved before and that is not typical for airline aircraft. So do they go back to the drawing board? Do they make some major (laughs) changes there? No, why do that? Let's do like they do for military aircraft, of which Boeing is very heavily involved. Let's just go ahead. We, We come up with a design that we think is fabulous, we think is fantastic, sell it to the military, sell it to the Air Force, and lo and behold, it has problems, serious problems. We determine it's fatally flawed, so we go in and we tinker with it, and we do this to it and that to it and tweak it this way and that way, and we come up with fixes which address these various different symptoms but which do not eliminate the underlying problem because there's so much money already invested and so much money already committed and so many sales committed that (laughs) you don't go backwards. You keep going forwards. It's like President Bush. He never looked back. He's very proud of that, stating that he never looked back. He never, ever would consider whether he had made a mistake. I can't remember his exact words, but the point was he would never (laughs) think about whether he had erred, whether he had made a mistake. What a great man. What a measure of a great leader, right? Never wondering whether you've made a mistake, never looking back, only pushing forward. Outstanding. So, So they go ahead... They find that this aircraft, it is having an ascent path, a nose-up angle, angle of atti- altitude. But it says attitude. I don't get that. They call it attitude, and I'm thinking altitude. But in any case, that it is too steep and that it will cause the aircraft to stall and crash. And so what they do is they bring in an MCAS, a system, a safety system. This is the the most extreme irony. They put a safety system in place to deal with this serious issue. MCAS which is an acronym standing for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. Yes, Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. That pretty much says it all. So this is to prevent the aircraft stalling. What does it do? (laughs) Well, it has certain sensors which detect... What's going on in terms of the angle of attitude? AOA sensors, angle of attitude sensors. And they automatically cause 
a change in the aircraft if <laughs> if the red flags, if you will, fly, tell them that something's amiss here, that it's in danger of going into a stall. This system forces the aircraft nose down. It forces it into a dive. Well, lo and behold, both of these crashes happened minutes after takeoff. Both of them, in both cases, the nose of the airplane was repeatedly forced down by this wonderful computerized system like HAL and in uh, Space Odyssey. Was that 2001 A Space Odyssey? The computer, the artificial intelligence taking over, you know, like a self-driving car. You're no longer in control. It will save you. It will protect you, (laughs) right? But what if it doesn't? What if it causes the car to crash? Well, that's what's happening here. This wonderful system causing the aircraft to crash. So then it comes back to the matter of training. Yes, we need additional training for the pilots, no matter how experienced they are, no matter how skilled they are. They have to be trained to deal with instantly reacting to this system that Boeing has put in place on this, on the 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 aircraft, which can now cause the aircraft to crash. (laughs) In order to keep it from crashing, it causes it to crash. It's just, it's a stroke of genius. It's wonderful, truly wonderful. And, uh, Boeing is, I think, going to be hard-pressed not to be on the hook for a lot of liability. But pilots can pull the plug on that system, yes, manually. However, (laughs) this system taking over and forcing the plane down causes a crisis and can confuse the pilots. It causes a crisis that has to be dealt with. A crisis that is a man-made crisis via computers. Great stuff. So anyway, the FAA has belatedly grounded the 737 MAX 8s and MAX 9s. But this is one of those cases of better late than never. Better late than never is one of those truisms that just, you know, uh, as is true with all truisms, it's it's not true. (laughs) It's not true across the board. It's not true all the time, but it's true some of the time. But it claims to be true all the time. But in this case, yes, better late than never, absolutely. And the White House, meaning the Trump administration, has requested $72.4 million to fund the headquarters for the Space Force. Now, that may sound like a chunk of change. Yeah, that may sound like a lot of money, $72.4 million. I would be happy to have $72.4 million. But 
Really, it's a drop in the bucket compared to previous estimates of what this would cost, uh, something to the tune of $13 billion, with a B, dollars over the next five years. Well, that's because of massive changes in how they're going about this. Yes, the president wanted the Space Force to be an entirely separate military arm, if you will. But now it's going to be contained under the umbrella of the Air Force. And it's estimated that it will cost another $500 million, one-half billion per year, over and above what's currently spent on space. But it's exciting so that we can have this Space Corps, Space Force, great stuff. I have more to say about that in the next program or two. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you. Thank you.